Hi, it's Stephen from the show. I wanted to give a trigger warning for our listeners. In this episode, the first film we discuss is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which features scenes of sexual violence, which we talk about as part of our larger conversation about the movie and its lead character, Elizabeth Salander. That discussion happens from around the 3 minute 45 second mark to around the 18 minute 45 second mark, in case any listeners would like to skip over it. Enjoy the show. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portsdale. My name is Andrew Carroll. And today we're discussing the career of Scandi star Numi Rapace. Hello, <laughs> Andrew, run down her history. Numi Rapace was born in Hudiksvall, Sweden in 1979. Her first role was a minor non-speaking part in the Icelandic film In the Shadow of the Raven, which prompted her to be an actress. She left home at 15 and enrolled in a theatre school in Stockholm. Her first jobs were mostly in various theatres across Stockholm, as well as Lucinda Gonzalez in the soap opera Tre Connor. In 2007, the film Daisy Diamond won her the top Danish acting awards, the Bodil and Robert Prize, respectively. In 2009, she starred in the adaptations of Stieg Larsson's Millennium Trilogy, all three of which were released in the same year and co-starred Michael Nyquist. The role of Elizabeth Stanlander in the Millennium Trilogy won her the Guldbage in her native country and saw her nominated for a BAFTA and a European Film Award. The extended editions were released as a TV miniseries, uh, which earned her an Emmy nomination. Rapace began an international career with her first English-speaking role being that of Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. In 2012, she starred in Ridley Scott's underseen, underrated, and unfairly maligned alien prequel, Hell Prometheus. Yeah. The 2020 saw Rapace star in a series of thrillers including Brian De Palma's Passion, Michael Roscombe's The Drop, Daniel Espinosa's Child 44, and Vicky Jusen's Close. In 2021, Rapace will return to Icelandic cinema for the first time in over 30 years in the A24 distributed Lamb. She is due to appear in the thriller The Price, as well as the horror film You Won't Be Alone. As well as English and her native Swedish, she speaks Danish, Icelandic, and Norwegian. Yeah, I love Numi Rapace. And what amazes me about her watching a bunch of her work in a short period of time is that she often plays characters who are very strong, yet also very vulnerable. And those two things never really contradict each other. They Mm. sort of just exist side by side. And I think... She plays characters who suffer a lot. Yeah. But they're never just victims. Like, she gives them a power and an agency. And yeah. I think it's best exemplified by Elizabeth Salander. But it's sort of throughout all her roles. Yeah. <laughs> I watch for this, at least, anyway. And what's cool about her is that Rapace has almost exclusively worked in kind of edgy genre fare. Yeah. And I, I think that's opened the door for her to do a lot of really physical acting. You know, stuff with a lot of action and stunts as which I think she's really capable of, but on top of like more emotional mm. acting. And alien C-sections to boot. <laughs> exactly. And in the case of Dragon Tattoo Trilogy, it sort of enabled her to really transform for parts. Mm, yeah. Uh, which is cool. And yeah, five languages? I can barely speak one. I mean, yeah. come on. <laughs> yeah, just listen to this podcast. Like, but she, she, I watched five movies for this and three different languages. Mm. That's crazy. That's insane, yeah. 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 But uh, and do you have any broader thoughts on Rapace before we get into her, the career? I just I really like all the characters she plays and everything I've watched. Even if the films like say something like Dead Man Down or Close are like maybe a little um, one note, I think she brings something to them that uh, like a, either a physicality or even a vulnerab- vulnerability that uh, kind of kicks the film up a notch. Yeah. Even if it's you know not not really rocketing towards you Definitely. as uh, films like that films like that should. Hmm. 
Yeah, do you want to start off by talking about Girl with the Dragon Tattoo? Sure. Breakthrough. Do you want to do the plot there? Sure, yeah. Numi Repras plays Elizabeth Salander, a bisexual goth chick hacker with a burning hatred for rapists, murderers of women, and misogynists in general. After her research leads to disgraced investigative journalist Michael Blomqvist, played by Ni- Michael Nyquist, uh, from John Wick, being hired by industrialist Henrik Wanger, played by Sven Bertil-Taube, to investigate the 36-year-old disappearance of Henrik's uh, niece, Harriet, Salander takes an interest in the case and in Blomqvist himself. Yeah, so I think Elizabeth Salander, as as agreed by uh, The Guardian and other um, papers of record, is one of the most enigmatic and fierce characters of the 21st century and maybe one of the defining female, an- not even anti-heroes, heroines of the last 10 years, probably. Mm. I think she's a character wide open to interpretation because her creator, Stieg Larsson, who died in 2005, I think, way before the films were made, just after the first book was published, I think he was never wholly certain as to who she was either. And there's one interview with him and he's like oh she might be this she might be that and uh, he, you can tell she's uh, as much of an not maybe not as much of an enigma to him as she is to others but um, he certainly didn't know everything about her um, when she was you know fully fleshed out on the page which is um, which is always nice you know when a creator yeah. well obviously it can work really badly sometimes but when a creator doesn't know exactly uh, what their character is capable of psychologically, it allows, I think, a greater interpretation by, um, say, fans or critics, um, uh, especially in this case, because I think this movie, or this story, I think, um, could be street theatre, and it'd still be just as compelling as it is. Yeah. Like, obviously, the David Fincher adapted it uh, for the Hollywood crowd, basically, and it starred Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig, and I think that that movie is brilliant. I love it. I love the story. Um, and even when it's kind of like in a more TV movie mo- mode or like yes, doesn't yeah. didn't have the budget of a Hollywood production the, the behind it. The feature one's a lot more operatic. Yeah. And stylized. Yeah. And yeah. this one is sort of brutal because of the story. But it's sort of presented in a way that's a bit like Wallander or The Killing or one of those Scandi Noirs you might see on BBC. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. That's probably one, it's one of the ones that kicked it all off, I'd say. Yeah. yeah. Um, like the the story and the investigation and Elizabeth Sandler herself are just so compelling that uh, you could see this acted out in a park, much like Shakespeare in the park, and be like, "Yes, this is brilliant! I I can't wait to see! It. I can't wait to see what they'd." If only, if only there was a massive Hollywood blockbuster uh, version of it. And I think outside of the girl in the spider's web that we covered for our Lakeith Stanfield episode, which essentially makes Elizabeth Salander into John Wick, I think every other adaptation of the first three books has sought to show the girl beneath the dragon tattoo. Mm. And I think obviously like Rooney Mara, who plays her in the um, uh, American adaptation, is the kind of showy, showier performance just because of the the whole like Oscar circus that was around that performance as well. Yeah. There was the whole thing of like, oh, she dyed her hair and she uh, had it chopped into ribbons to make it look like Salander cut it herself. She shaved her eyebrows off. She got a motorbike license. She pierced her nipples. And it's like all this really um, pierced like lots of other parts of her body as well. Uh, I think Numi Rapace gets closer to like the core of the character. I think in that her performance feels both kind of more tragically and heroically human. And in Finch's version, I'm more invested in, in the investigation. Whereas in Op- Andre Opla's version, the Swedish version, I'm more invested in Elizabeth's journey from like mercenary yet vulnerable hacker to a much more confident and determined young woman who you really wouldn't want to meet on a dark night in Stockholm. And yeah, like I said, I don't think it matters how the girl with the dragon tattoo is adapted. I think the story is so good and the investigation is so compelling that it could be street theatre and I'd still be invested in it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, it's not surprising that this is the performance that sort of launched her to international stardom yeah. because... 
there's a lot to Elizabeth Salander. Like, she's a great, unique character. But because there's a lot to her, there's a lot that you can mess up. You know, she has the awesome, you know, striking look and all the black clothes and the spiked collar mm. and the piercings on the nose and the scaffolding in the ears and the t- tight short hair. Like, it's such a strong look as a piece of concept for a character that you could kind of almost skate by on that, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, but, like... She could be a villain and she could be, like, a minor villain in Blade. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, on top of Top Hacker, like, one of the best, mm. also suggests that she may have... Asperger syndrome or you know beyond yeah, the spectrum yeah. she's bisexual and also a key to her character is her trauma you know like she had this traumatic childhood with an abusive father um, that's before the events of the film where she is raped as an adult by her legal guardian um, who entrusted on, on by the state to look yeah. after her who she then swiftly exacts brutal revenge on and before kind of coming over the course of the film and the rest of the series of books and movies a sort of you know, superhero punishing yeah. men who hate women which is actually the Swedish title for Girl with the Dragon Tattoo <laughs> Men Who Hate Women and yeah I think it could be so easy for the movies or the actors that play Elizabeth to t- lean into the kind of cooler hacker spy stuff mm. Yeah, and sand off her rougher edges, which I think that Claire Foy movie does. Not really Claire Foy's fault, but sort of the movie around her. Yeah, I think they were like really into making her a superhero after the trilogy that Steve Larson wrote. They were like, oh yeah, let's just let's just make it it's something like uh, like Tom Clancy or you know any of those run of the mill thriller writers. It's, it's, would, it's sort of like edgy Bond kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think even that one has like the NSA or something and stuff. Yeah, like. yeah. It's like fucking a sniper rifle using X-ray imaging to track people through a house or some shit like that. Yeah, yeah. But um, I think what the original Swedish trilogy and what Rapas does really well is to take all those disparate elements and actually make you understand how they could all exist within a human being. Mm. Because you know we first see her in the scene where she's in. Um, it's a scene where Vanger's lawyer meets Salander and her boss, you know, and she was asked to run a background check on Michael Blomquist. And the journalist, uh, and Blomquist is the journalist Vanger wants to hire to look into the disappearance of his mm-hmm. niece decades earlier. And Lisbeth's boss is like to the lawyer before they meet her, just to warn you, she's our best researcher, but she's pretty odd. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they walk into the office and she's just there in the full goth makeup and she's... Yeah, awkward socially. Like the lawyer who paid for her service goes in to shake her hand and um, she just ignores it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And he then is like, what did you find? And she's like, read the file. <laughs> and he's like, I want the short version. And then she just like rattles off three quick facts and is like, the rest is in the file. And <laughs> just like leaves. And yeah. the uh, her speech is very like emotionless and clipped. Yeah. But I think over the course of the movie, Rappas kind of quickly and through a couple of really sharply played scenes and often sort of unspoken moments makes you understand why she is that way. And you know, why she is so closed off from other mm, people. Yeah. Because, like, there's that bit in the train station early on, which I think is sort of key to Elizabeth, where she bumps into a bunch of, you know, uh, drunk guys. Ruffians. Riff raff. And they attack her and pour beer in her. And, and with, Hooligan, and with, as the Swedes call them. <laughs> and with a, a proficiency that suggests it's not her first time having to, you know, fend for herself. She, like, bites and, like, punches yeah. back and, like, picks up a broken bottle on the floor and scratches one of them and is screaming, like, this battle cry. Yeah. Eventually, she just gets them to back off yeah. by sheer presence. But after they leave, we see her, like, struggling to catch her breath and, like, holding back the tears. And it's a quick little scene that doesn't really push the pot forward, but it's kind of Rapas's Elizabeth in a nutshell in that, like, this is the type of views she's been suffering but also fighting against her whole life. But, you know, like, yeah. I think in the sequels, her father, you learn, was a sex trafficker who beat her mother so badly she sustained permanent brain damage. And that's kind of alluded to here because in the mm. scene where they, she goes to be visit her mother in the care home. And, you know, as a child, we, Elizabeth poured petrol on him and lit him on fire, which <laughs> we see briefly in flashback. Mm. Later on the film, 
she violently raped by her guardian Bureman before turning the tables on him and she like tases him and sodomizes him before tattooing I am a sadistic pig and a rapist on his stomach and yeah. blackmailing him into telling the courts he doesn't need a legal guardian anymore. So, like, by the time we get to her being in a position to save the truly, truly evil rapist and serial killer in the case Blomquist and her end yeah. wind up investigating, but choosing not to, like, letting him burn alive, it not only totally makes logical sense for the character, but it isn't too simplistic and Hollywoody because rapists in little scenes, like the one in Train Station, make Salander feel like a real life human being who was forced yeah. to harden and embrace violence to survive. Like when she punishes Bureven or the serial killer, it's triumphant to a degree, but it's not like Clint Eastwood, you know, like, do you feel lucky? Punk? Yeah. <laughs> like it, 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 the stakes feel real. Yeah. And yeah, and I just think over the course of the movie, you sort of all her negative experiences with other humans, for the most part, men have left her very untrusting of people. And yeah, I think that's why she wears black and has all the piercings. It's her way of telling people who aren't like her to stay away. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I also think it's why she likes hacking, you know, being on a computer all day. You don't have to interface with other humans, but you also get to know people very intimately, all the skeletons in their yeah, closet. Yeah. And I don't think she, like, hates other people. But I just think she's so scared or scarred that, you know, she takes a long time to warm up to them because she trusts Blomquist because she ran a computer search on him and she found nothing. Yeah. But even their relationship starts off kind of uneasy because of her baggage before they gradually become friends and lovers. Mm. And I love her delicately. All those scenes are played by... Um, you know, Michael Nyquist mm. as Blunkquist and Rapaz in the car or in his little like investigating shack. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in the... When they first have sex, he's like, you're leaving? And she's yeah. like, yeah, good night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He doesn't want to lose her, but while he doesn't know anything about her past, like he senses the darkness there Yeah, and doesn't know how to talk to her without spooking her. Mm. Like there's the bit where he notices she has a photographic memory and he asks her about it and Rapaz just speedily like takes off into another room. Yeah, yeah probably out of fear she'll be judged and he has to go in there and be like I wasn't mocking you like it's amazing like mm. I'm jealous I wish I had one it would be, it would be so handy <laughs> I'm a journalist and you know all that stuff is really solid And but there's a tragedy too because even after all her and Blumkus have been through by the end of the movie like she still doesn't feel yeah. comfortable being yeah. open with him like cause she visits her mother in the care home at the end and she asks Elizabeth like do you have a boyfriend and she says something like there is someone but you should never fall in love you should know that Yeah, and I, I love that because like just because she has this connection with Blomkus doesn't make her past trauma and distrust of people just magically disappear. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But you also get the sense that, like, she could heal over time. Yeah, their relationship does end on, in the first movie, on kind of a hopeful note that the two will stay in touch in each other's lives because she, she helps them out of the prison jam. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I, I like the movie overall. I think it's the stuff with Lisbeth and Bureman is, like, so hard hitting and like whoa yeah that it's so compelling and i do think it kind of becomes a little bit like an episode of like kenneth browner's wallander in the middle but uh, it, it recovers with like a pretty kick-ass last 45 minutes like, yeah, unco- yeah finding out who the serial killer is the whole reveal the, the sounds of the lambs way it plays out yeah yeah is great um all the wrapping up of like the multiple plot threads is really satisfying um i i did want to talk a bit about comparing rapas to mara mm. Rappas does a great job of taking this heightened character and showing the human underneath and how society made her this way. And I think that works really well within what's ultimately like a pretty solidly told conventional crime thriller with some gnarly elements. Yeah. And it's been years since I've seen it, but I, I watched a couple of clips of Mara in preparation for this. And Fincher's movie is a lot more like gothic and like stylized and operatic and is less interested in realism, which I, you know, I love too because yeah. there's merits to both approaches and I'm glad they just didn't make the same movie again. But I think Mara withholds a lot of the humanity of Salander until key moments. I think she really emphasizes how damaged Salander is. And whereas I think you always trust 
uh, rap as a sounder is in control of her actions. Yeah. I feel like Mara's take feels a bit more dangerous and volatile. Like, it's possible she might have been driven insane by everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. it just seems like she's well, more that's kind frazzled. Of the, yeah, that's know. kind of the question of the trilogy, to my understanding. It's like there's a yeah court case climax and court case in the third book this is one of the rare movies i've actually read the books for (laughs) oh wow okay i haven't read the books they're kind of fantastic a little bit before my time my parents read them and uh, described them as something close to the word horrific just in terms of all (laughs) the violence and you know sexual assault and stuff like that one thing i will say one thing i will talk about in comparison to like the fincher version and uh orlev's oplev's version is that you believe in uh, Michael Nyquist is a journalist, whereas in David Fincher's version, Ozzy oh, was James Bond. A counter. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah, Danny Craig's really hot, though. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, no, absolutely. I think yeah, you yeah, get yeah, the, yeah. The, the. You maybe not believe Danny Craig's a journalist, but you believe, I think, more that that they them two would get together. <gasps> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, I think, and I don't like, think the Fincher one's that interested in the sort of like filing copy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Blomquist is like is. He he's obviously like a stand-in for um, Larson himself, much like mm. you know writer writer car- writer protagonist in Stephen and, King. And that's interesting because the whole movie you mentioned Larson, you're not sure if he ever got a handle on Elizabeth, but mm. Blomkiss doesn't either. Uh, exactly, yeah, yeah. But it's it's just like oh, this he's just like convincing, more convincing as a, no offense to journalists, as a as a journalist, like physically. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Kind of a, a just really, a diet of a cigarettes guy, and coffee, but kind of like a dumpy dude. Yeah, He's a yeah, bit yeah, like yeah, a bit like yeah. bags under his eyes, a little bit yeah. kind of world weary. Yeah. Like. And it's then fucking and five years later, he's knife fighting Keanu Reeves, and you're like, I believe this as well. <laughs> he's just in cinema history for the the Baba Yaga monologue. The Baba Yaga, yeah. He's also great in the Mission Impossible movie he's in. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Even though he has like ten lines. <laughs> yeah, true. They really don't. That movie does not care about him. No, but he's still like. A great character. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Just on Rappas, though, I just think, like, you could have this debate about, like, what's better, Rappas, Mara, Foy. Yeah, yeah. It's not Foy. It's <laughs> but, not Foy, yeah. But um, I think you have to give credit to Rappas for originating the character on screen. And I think by proxy sort of advancing cinema's depictions of hackers. Because yeah. I feel like for grow- grown up for years, like, all hackers were geeks. Who, this like, ain't Star your granddad's Wars. swordfish. Yeah, and... Like, since Dragon Tattoo, we've had things like Mr. Robot, which is a great show, that the director of the Swedish Dragon Tattoo helmed a couple of episodes of in the oh, first nice. season so far, added kind of, like, those vibes. Yeah. And then also, like, stuff like Black Hat, I don't think we'd have if it wasn't for Michael Mann checking out Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, like, probably, That's yeah. kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, good, good, great movie. And um, the sequels are decent. I do, do think the, the, the first Swedish movie, though, is really, like, the pre Yeah, I just, I just kind of wasn't interested in anything after... Um the first movie they get they they get a bit more convoluted it's just such a perfect kind of crime thriller story even if it is you know gnarly as we said you know going prepared um but it i think that it's just like really really good you know it's kind of the benchmark for scandi noir as they call it yeah will we talk prometheus sure numi repass plays dr elizabeth shaw an archaeologist who along with her partner charlie holloway play by Tom Hardy look like Logan Marshall Green, <laughs> uncovers evidence of aliens visiting ancient humans. Aboard the Wayland yutani vessel Prometheus bound for distant moon LV-223, the crew discovers that meeting the makers of humanity may doom their entire race. You're pregnant. What? From the look of it, three months, sir. No, that's impossible. I can't be pregnant. Did you have intercourse with Dr. Holloway? Yes, but 
10 hours ago. There's no bloody way. I'm, I'm three months pregnant. Well, Doctor, it's not exactly a traditional fetus. I want to see it. Don't think that's a good idea. David, I want to see it. Now, Doctor. I want to see it. I want it out of me. I'm afraid we don't have the personnel to perform a procedure like that. Our best option... I want it out. ...put you back into cryostasis until we return to Earth. Please, get it out of me. Get it out of me! Please. Uh, so even if the placement of this film within the Alien universe doesn't make a whole lot of sense... I don't know. Does who it, cares? It's yeah, great. who cares? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think it's performances, design, themes, and settings supersede all that to create one of the 2010s like best and most ambitious blockbusters. And what I like about uh, Prometheus the most is also what I like about Alien and Alien Covenant is that it's it's an ensemble, but the leader Dallas, played by Tom Skerritt, in Alien Vickers, played by Charlize Theron, in Prometheus, and Orem, played by Billy Crudup in Alien Covenant, is never the protagonist. It's always an important female team member but never someone the crew is really willing to listen to until it's too late. So, like, you know, Ripley is the navigations officer, um, Elizabeth Shaw is an archaeologist, and in Alien Coven, Catherine Waterstone is, like, head of terraforming. So her job's not important until they get to the planet. (laughs) But, like, compared to Ripley and Catherine Daniels, who's Catherine Waterstone's character in Covenant, Elizabeth Shaw is really put through the ringer in Prometheus. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Like, sure, like, Ripley has to run away from an alien in a ship, Daniels even has to kill um, the alien who, which has, has killed basically all her friends except for Danny McBride <laughs> um, in Alien Covenant. But no woman should ever have to give herself a C-section, especially when the baby is a many tentacled alien in her womb. Yeah, and there's a device that does operations, but it's like, nah, it's only for men. Yeah, it's only for men. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think a lot of Numi Rapace's characters can be quite cynical or hardened or sceptical. So it's kind of cool to see her playing against type as like a wide-eyed, often awestruck woman who has a strong belief in science, but also who has reconciled that belief in science with a very strong faith in God. And she's also accepting Captain Janik, played by Eldris Elba, and his pilots, uh, who are played by Eamon Elliott and, Ray- and ben- Benedict Wong, the only genuinely decent and nice person on the ship. Yes, true, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. I, I freaking love Prometheus. I have since I saw it in the theatres in 2012, and... I understand why it got kind of a muted reaction because it's a movie where the subtext is very much the text where I think the thematic questions it's asking are more important than the plot itself. So sometimes the A to B plot mechanics of it can be a little rushed. Like I think some of the conclusions about the engineers and their attempt for humanity that the characters reach feel a little bit like they reached a, a B too quick yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Or like the movie drops a big revelation and you don't kind of have enough time to sit with it. Yeah. Because it's just like barreling yeah, forward. Yeah. But Father... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it, it's a movie that boasts incredible cast that's even more impressive years on after its release. Uh, mm. Looks beautiful, both in terms of its location, like has sleek, futuristic designs, pacey as hell, and really scary. Like the gooey ecology of the planet that's yeah. never explained is so gross and horrifying in a good way where you're like, I don't know if I can touch anything. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But I, most important, it's it's so rich in its religious allegories and it's kind of probing of mankind's mm, need yeah. to ask, you know, why are we here? You know, were we put here by some sort of divine creator and how believing that there's something out there beyond our everyday existence can be, you know, a comfort and a source of strength for people. But also, as long as we're alive, at least we'll never get answers. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we'll never yeah. know. No one knows for sure. Yeah, I, and I think this movie got sort of a muted reaction when it came out because 
it hypes up the godlike engineers so much but when you know humans finally get to pose those questions to one of them it just goes crazy and starts killing yeah. everybody <laughs> and well that's frustrating narratively it's kind of perfect for the teams it's getting at because you will never know yeah you know yeah and um i think rapaces shaw in the first third or ha- first half of the movie suffers a little bit on one hand, because of the the film's large cast of characters, yeah, in that yeah. like Charlize Theron's Vickers, who's this sort of like corporate badass, really enigmatic and intense, and Fassbender's robot, who's David, who's so mm. complicated, and all the other characters are so jaded, like they're there on like a work assignment, which is the, probably the closest it gets to sort of alien vibes. Yeah, yeah. But you know Shaw's optimism and kind of resolute belief in her mission and science and faith is a little less interesting at first. And I also think the decision to make Shaw English and have rappers talk with the British accent is a little odd. And I think, to be fair, her accent's nearly perfect throughout. But it's just the odd line where you're like, we won't have a home to go back to. <laughs> yeah, or the bit where she, she has to say Sorry, something Nimi. really British. And she's like, there's no bloody way I'm three months pregnant. You're like, this is not something you'd naturally say. Yeah, just, yeah. A little bit. And to be honest, like it's not just Numi. I feel like this movie cast a lot of really famous actors before they'd hit their kind of peak fame yeah and has has them have weird accents like accents that are not their own and they've now kind of become known for their accents like i really know elba's accent so when he's kind of talking in a southern twang it feels weird same with rafe spall i weirdly like Mm, i'm very familiar with rafe spall's voice so when he's talking in american accent it's like this is strange patrick wilson even is doing a british accent in his brief kind of cameo to be honest, I barely remember that cameo. I don't remember the voice. I just remember those no. really dreamlike yeah, it's beautiful. Instagram filter but, shot, um, shots of the Ganges. It's just like, it's the future, Ridley. Just let people talk in a natural yeah, dialect. Yeah. People come from all over. Yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? She could just be like, yeah. If Sean Harris can be Cockney and Kate Dickey can be Scottish, then Idris Elba can be English. Yeah, exactly. But I think Rapace is meant to be a little boring in the first third because the movie's playing the long game with her mm, character. Because yeah. gradually we learn more about her, that she has this kind of wealth of sadness within her. She can't bear a child. She also, you know, suffered, you know, the, the grief of the death of her parents when she was young, particularly her father, um, because when David watches her dreams, like, and he, like, literally watches her dreams. Yeah. It's so cool. They seem so close there. Like, I think her father died when um, she was a bit older. Yeah. And Dr. Elizabeth Shaw. And you, you come to the realization that Raphael's belief in the beyond, you know, and there's a whole thing about her wearing a cross the entire movie until she has her fate tested and where she's without it during mm. that abortion scene. Yeah. That's her way of coping with all these losses and that, you know, it's probably why she's embarking on this mission, you know, for answers. You know, why did this happen to me? And I think anytime the movie slows down for five minutes and gives Shaw a bit of room to breathe, she's really good. Raphael's is really good. And I think it's worth noting that Theron, who I think gives her best performance ever in Prometheus, is the kind of suit representing the Wayland Corporation, who may or may not be a robot. Um, she was originally cast in the rapper's role, but had to drop out because of scheduling conflicts and then ended up taking the smaller part. And Ridley Scott was such a big fan of Guru with the Dragon Tattoo that he seems to have really fought for Rapace, mm. um, who wasn't a big star yet for the lead Yeah, there role. were loads of people in competition for that. Natalie Portman was the other big one mm. I heard. And I think it's a happy accident how it worked out because the fact that Rapace's character has such a different outlook to all the other characters that gives her a different energy that like yeah, makes her stand yeah. out a bit so that when she becomes uh, you know the Ellen Ripley the final girl it feels a bit natural yeah. and I think that's when she really comes into her own like when Shaw's hopeful outlook rapidly deteriorates and her faith is really tested like the scene where David tells her she's three months pregnant from the infected Holloway who has just died from this strange alien pathogen yeah. and it's his baby and she's like there's no way and for a second you're not sure whether she's happy or sad if she thinks it's like a miracle because she couldn't conceive and you know she wanted kids so badly but but she's not showing any emotions but she's just being very inquisitive as you would be 
and David delivers the hammer blow. Well, well, Doctor, it's uh, not a traditional fetus. And you just see the terror sink in on her face and she's like, I want to see it. I want to see it. I want it out of me. <laughs> and she starts writhing in pain and her face fills the screen. Like, it's awesome. It's so good. And you feel it in your bones. And then, you know, David drugs her and starts talking about how her dad died in similar circumstances to Holloway. What was it? Ebola? And again, her face fills the screen. It's almost like that shot you always see from the Dreher movie, Passion of Joan of Arc. The one tear rose down her face and she's stuttering and quivering. And she's like, how do you know that? And he's like, I watched your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Michael Fassbender is so good. He's Both really those great, movies, yeah. Really. You do the fingering. I love oh, in oh. Amy and Covenant, he's playing someone who's like, David was too human. We got to we his the, dial, the, it dial, yeah, back, dial it back, dial it back, dial it back, a bit more robotic. Yeah, you know. yeah. And I think her the scene where she gives her abortion, where gives herself an abortion. I think that's where the Elizabeth Salander vibes come in, like resourceful kind of yeah, action yeah. movie. I don't love it. It's awful for her, but it's, it's, <laughs> it can be very entertaining to watch. Like she can't give herself anesthesia too much because she has to like give the commands. Yeah, be cognizant. Yeah, and she's like, "Come on, get it out!" While also being kind of woozy. Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, the whole thing is great and. I know some people have an issue that immediately after the abortion, she's running around the place yeah. going to meet the engineers. And to that, I say, shut up, because <laughs> she's constantly jabbing herself yeah. with some futuristic device. I imagine it's some painkiller that doesn't make you woozy. Yeah, it kind yeah. of dulls the pain, but like keeps you kind of like yeah. adrenaline. Who are these people that are like, oh, I just want her to sleep for 24 hours. Yeah, I want, shut I the want it fuck to be up. like Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween Kills. I just want yeah. her in the bed the whole time. No, yeah. I don't. I don't like sedate yeah. heroes. <laughs> F that. I quite like as well that like despite everything she's been through by the end of the movie and despite frankly how rude the engineers ended up being um, <laughs> I like that she That's one way to put it she retains her fate because humans are like that you yeah. know like despite everything to the contrary a lot of people and sometimes me included do believe or can still believe in certain moments like there's gotta be more right yeah yeah and um, I like the sequel stinger of her and David going to explore new worlds together like it's mm. very uplifting and it, it kind of sucks that because Prometheus didn't perform as well as they hoped at the box office. Although it did great for the movie, it actually it did, ended yeah, up being... Yeah, it did pretty, well, pretty fucking well, yeah. Yeah, but, but I think because like they they I mean, they wanted to be an alien-sized hit, and I think fans wanted more of a direct link to Alien, and they were yeah. disappointed. They sort of dropped the Shaw plotline for Alien Covenant, and I, I think that movie does her a little bit dirty. Like, I, I don't think, think so she's too, barely, yeah. She's not really in it, or I think you just see her body. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I think she's yeah. shot some prologue stuff that wasn't in the movie. Yeah. You know, they released yeah. those short films before that came yeah. out. But um, Prometheus is so good. And I think if people went to see it and they were a little flummoxed by it at the time yeah. because they thought it was going to be more directly an alien movie, I think they should watch it now with fresh eyes and they'd be like, wow, this is actually the best sci-fi movie of the yeah, last 20 that's, years. Because I think I had seen Alien pretty recently um, when I saw Prometheus, the summer of its release, and I was like, it's not as good as Alien. But nothing is, you yeah. know? <laughs> I like that it's kind of... Ridley, they really was like, I can do an alien movie. And he was like, yeah, but I'll kind of do a secret Blade Runner yeah. <laughs> movie too. Yeah. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. Phoning It In is back. Hello, my name is Dave Coffey and I'm the host of Phoning It In, the hilarious improvised phone-in show. Think Joe Duffy meets your favourite Irish comedians. Our first episode back is already out and features the young hot guys, Tony Cantwell, Shane Danburn and Killian Sunderman. This season we'll also have lots of bonus material available on Headstuff Plus, including new improv style games with all your favourite guests. Phoning It In is available every fortnight wherever you get your podcasts and on the Headstuff Podcast Network. Thanks for listening. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. 
Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events and lots more. We here at I Know The Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. Do you want to talk about Dead Man Down? Yeah, sure. Because uh, Dead Man Down reuniting her with the, the girl with the dragon tattoo director. O- yeah, that's Oblev, true. Niels yeah. Arden Oblev, I think his name is. Yes. Numi Rapace plays Beatrice Luzon, a woman who lives in the apartment across from revenge-obsessed Victor, played by Colin Farrell. Uh, Castlenock's own, and is blackmailing him into killing the drunk driver that disfigured her. Victor is after Alphonse Hoyt, played by Terence Howard, a gangster who oversaw the killing of Victor's wife and child and eventually draws Beatrice into his vengeance plot. You don't have to play these games, Victor. I know why you really came. You're just being careful. You want to find out if the girl who's been watching you saw what you did. I saw you kill this man. I saw you strangle him. I saw you take him away. Now you're trying to clean up a mess that cannot be cleaned up. I think your secret will be safe with me. This is the man who did this to me. I want you to kill him. So the highlight of this movie, just to be clear, as I said in our Isabelle Huppert episode, is Maman Luzon, who's played by Isabelle Huppert. Uh, Beatrice's mother, who's a ray of sunshine compared to literally everyone else in this movie. She bakes cookies, lives in an <laughs> apartment decorated like a provincial cottage situated somewhere in the French countryside, and insists on having fun with her dour, grief-stricken daughter. For instance, the first time uh, Isabelle Huppert is in- introduced, she appears behind Numi Pass in reflection with a green face mask on, and you're like, oh! <laughs> um, but onto the only other woman in the film. Um Repast. It's an unusual setup for a revenge thriller, and one which has an added wrinkle in that the hero must deal with this with his love interest, trying to blackmail him, as well as his complex revenge plot, which is already on pretty shaky ground, like trying to psychologically and physically torture the man that killed your wife and child. Maybe not the best idea, What's especially he when do? he's a- he's like doing like a hangman thing. Yeah, something yeah, like that. I, 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 I haven't seen this movie I since I saw it in the theaters. Yeah, um, I haven't seen it since I saw it for at the start of this year, mm. which was eleven months ago. <laughs> and it, the this B plot romance kind of wrinkle is eventually resolved in like a scene, and is more fertile tr- tr- territory for something like an erotic thriller. Maybe not something as mad as Basic Instinct, but one of the you know copycat follow ups to that, rather than something that's basically chasing Taken's coattails. 
And it's an original idea, and as you said, it reunites uh, Rapace with the Millennium Trilogy director Neil Darden Oplev, but its unique quirks are kind of overshadowed by the kind of things that Hollywood thinks is great, but it's just old hat even by 2013 standards. And I'd love to see new, uh, Rapace and Farrell in a better film together, and I'd also like to see the alternate universe comedy that has Huppert playing matchmaker to two of the most dour characters to ever set foot on screen. Yeah, Michael Haneke's Yeah, Michael Haneke's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Dead Man Down. Yeah. No, I agree. I, I, I think it's an interesting movie to talk about in comparison to The Drop, whereas mm. I think what I sort of liked about Dead Man Down was how there are parts of it, kind of the Hooper stuff and the Rampart stuff, which felt very authentic and a bit down to earth but then the Colin Farrell stuff is so crazy like yeah. I think at the end of the movie he like drives a truck through a building while like firing machine guns yeah. <laughs> and the two yeah. things just don't ever coalesce whereas I think in the drop the, those both the human stuff and the kind of crime stuff really do yeah, um, yeah so the drop oh, the drop is so odd it's so good but it's so odd yeah as well. it's very like the plot's a little complicated but essentially it follows Bob played by Tom Hardy a barman who works with his uncle uh, played by James Gandolfini last role on screen and the, together they're they work in a bar that is um, run by the Chechen mob in Brooklyn and essentially it's three plot strands number one the bar is robbed and the Chechens want their cash back and the culprit which is complicated two it's a 10 year anniversary of a man Richie Whelan's disappearance and the last place he was seen was Bob's bar and because of that a local cop played by John Ortiz the great John Ortiz um, starts poking his nose around. Three Bob discovers a beaten up dog that was left in the bin of Numero Pass's uh, Nadia's house. Uh, this woman who has had mental health struggles in the past and is trying to get over this toxic relationship she had with this scary vicious dude played by uh, an excellent Matthias Schoenartz uh, doing an incredible US like regional he's accent. He's so good. I can't, I can't believe he's, he's like Belgian. <laughs> yeah he's Belgian yeah. yeah. But anyway, Hardy's Bob and Rapace's Nadia grow closer taking care of this injured dog and the three plot lines converge on the night of the Super Bowl. In a very satisfying way. You never ask about it. Only person I ever met didn't ask about it, like the first five minutes. It's your business, not mine. You, you, you tell me when you tell me or you won't. I did it to myself. I was pretty high. You did that? Yeah. With one of those, um, peeler. Peeler? You know, um, Potato peeler. Oh, God, yeah, I know what that is, Ray. I was a different person than I. I didn't really like myself. Uh, what did you think of this? I loved it. It's I thought it was great. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think everyone in this movie is just left of center in terms of behavior and how they interact with other people. And I think Nadia is like the closest to normal, even if she has had addiction issues in the past and a vicious thug of an, ex- of an ex-boyfriend. And I think it, it's a film twisted in favor of its kind of like choosy offbeat performers and the kind of American film that attracts the more oddball European actors like Rapace and Schoenartz and to a lesser or more extreme degree, depending on your point of view, Tom Hardy. And it's also like a layered story with like various kinds of toxic masculinity at work from like Bob's subdued, simmering antisocial rage to Deeds' possessive, ready to blow straight man aggression. That's straight man, the sexuality, not straight man, the comedy duo. Um and it's also the kind of movie you get out of what you put into it. Like, you can come to it and be like, I just want a pretty entertaining thriller. And you get that. Mm. But it's also, like, so much more layered than that. And it's kind of timeless to a degree in that it could, much like any Dennis Lehane adapted thing, it could be set between, uh, well, other than Shutter Island, <laughs> um, it could be set, uh, set any time between 1990 and 2015. I think Nadia, just on repass, is like a vulnerable woman caught between Eric who's a very ups- unstable man, and Bob, who's essentially Batman if Batman was broke and killed people. 
um, and she's still drawn to Bob because he's nothing like Eric, evidenced by his affection for the rescued dog. But maybe he's worse than Eric in the one way Eric was never actually bad, despite his claims to the contrary. <laughs> Yet Nadia is still drawn to Bob, to Bob, perhaps because of that danger, or because she knows, somehow, that Bob is a man with a code, which is something few others in the movie seem to have. It's also a very fun movie as well. Yeah, it is. Yeah, or not fun, but funny. It's fun already, but it's 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 got a couple of funny lines. It's in that it Dennis Lehane thing where just the dialogue feels really like lived in. Yeah, like, the yeah. bit where the guy's like, I couldn't understand him. It was like he was speaking Brazilian, and yeah. Jen's got a thing. He's like Portuguese. They speak Portuguese in, in Brazil. Brazil. There's yeah. no such thing as Brazilian. Or the bit where Tom Hardy's like the Chechens, not Chechnians. He's like, what? You don't call people from Ireland Islandians? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> oh, so uh, good. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's based on a. It's written by and based on a short story by Dennis Lehane, who also wrote Mystic River, Gone Baby Gone, worked on The Wire, and My Beloved Outsider, and all those things have a similar vibe. Even The Outsider, which is a Stephen King adaptation, they're very sort of human crime stories. Mm. And I, I just think he's one of those dudes to go to if you want to watch or read something that, on the face of it, is a crime story, but is actually underneath, you know, stories about human characters with wants and dreams and face dilemmas that are compelling and fascinating mm. and feel true to life. And um, it's also directed by Michael Roskam, who's this Belgian director who mostly makes crime movies too. And it's his first American movie. So you have the script that feels authentic, coupled with a director who's bringing this sort of enhanced realism for a Hollywood movie mm. and like comes from Europe where movies are a bit edgier. And so you, like this movie looks like shot on location. Like a lot of scenes take place in these like back oh, alleys so dirty. and docklands that don't look glamorous, Cold but have a lot of grit yeah. and atmosphere and feel kind of drippy. I, I love that. It's gritty in the way Dead Man Down wants to be. Exactly. Yeah. And it, it's its structure is very interesting in that like it tricks you into thinking you're watching something very slice of life before suddenly building to this incredibly intense, satisfying climax. But on the like milieu of the movies, like all these characters, you know, like the central trio, Peppa Hardy, Gunnafini and Rapaz, like they don't seem to have a lot of money. They don't seem to have like education. There's not a lot of opportunities for yeah. them. They're all sort of trapped in this hopeless purgatory place where the only thing people seem the to have... salvation is the Chechen mob. <laughs> the bar. Like, yeah, there's not yeah. even that scene where the dude who knew Richie Whelan who's being interviewed by John Ortiz and John Ortiz asks if Bob, if the Tardy's bartender, knew Richie and he's like, that's my bar. Don't fuck with my bar. <laughs> <laughs> even though his friend died, he's like... Leave the bar alone. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Marv, played by who gives us, like, beautiful, sad performance. Yeah, like, we learn his character has dreams and that he tries to make a reality in vain. And there's a sense that he knows he's going to fail, but it's his last kind of roll of the dice. Whereas Hardy's Bob and Repess is Nadia. I think their dream is just not being alone. You know, yeah, having someone that yeah. cares for them and loves them truly. And if I think I have a minor flaw with the movie, I think it's to do with the Nadia character in that, like, I wish she just had a little bit more focus compared to Bob and Marv. Yeah. Because yeah. with them, we're constantly learning more and more about them as the movie goes. You know, like, Hardy's Bob, such a good performance. Yeah, he lives this relatively solitary life and he seems a little sleepy, a little meek, a little yeah. mild, a little like, hey, I'm just following orders. I just tend the bar. And then all of a sudden, yeah. snap. And he's a lot sharper than he lets on and yeah. the detective does say like no one ever sees you coming that's do they, so Bob? good like even if even if you've barely been following the movie and like the climax of the movie I think will hit you like a surprise regardless of how of how well you've been following it that bit, that bit is, no one ever sees you coming do they Bob yeah is so good 
the, just the dialogue in the movie rips. Like, yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, like Marv has this all this kind of anger and resentment and disappointment that, like, before the Chechens, he was kind of the big man in the community. Kind of a Tony Soprano, if mm, you will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but since they came, and as Tom Hardy said, he flinched, you know, like he ceded control to them. He's not really respected. Doesn't have a lot to show for his life's work. I, he says at one point, like, I'm, I'm in my 50s. I live with my sister. <laughs> Type of aunt out. Oh, that's his sister. Okay. Yeah. 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 The bar he works at is Cousin Mars. He doesn't even own it. Yeah. <laughs> and he, isn't at one point, like, he's talking about his dad's on life support and he won't pull the plug because he loves him, but he can't afford to care for him. Yeah, It's all yeah. really heartbreaking. But, like, we gradually sort of peel away the layers of those characters in a way that's very satisfying. But I think, you know, with Nadia, we get the detail for asking to see Bob's license when they meet first, kind of showing that she's not very trusting of others. Yeah. Particularly men. Kind of like Elizabeth Salander. Oh. Character that haunts Snoopy Rapaz's filmography. <laughs> she sort of... Well, re- God forbid any uh, other actresses' car- uh, <laughs> careers are haunted by a strong female lead. <laughs> True, good point. But um, she sort of reveals everything about herself in that brief, well-written diner scene where she talks about the scars on her neck yeah. and how she did them to herself when she was high. And she says, like, I was a different person then. I, I didn't really like myself. And Bob says, like, do you like yourself now? And she doesn't know what to say. And then the waiter interrupts them. Like, it's really, it's good. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. But um, you kind of just want a bit more. You want a scene with her away from them too. Like not with Deeds or with Bob. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Something just like, because we get so many scenes of like Marv at home and Tom Hardy at home with the yeah. dog, you know. But um, I think it's interesting casting Numi who um, sort of speaks with a, a cross of her normal Swedish accent and a Brooklyn accent, kind of implying the yeah. character might have come to the States when she was young, which I think gives her a little more history and a bit of an inner life. But... I only really started to realize that the character of Natty was a little thin on a rewatch, which I think is a testament to Rapaz's performance, who does give the character a little bit more on the page. And we found it very interesting that Hardy and Rapaz are apparently very good friends in real life before making the drop. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, because they were in Child 44 after the drop. Yeah, yeah basically, they met when they got approached by a director for another movie that neither of them ended up <laughs> was, doing. Was he looking for uh, Hardy for the Charlie character in Prometheus? Probably, maybe. Like, oh, fuck, I can't get him. He'll just get his lookalike, his that, Australian lookalike. It is so much like... I, I like Logan Marshall Green. I love Upgrade. No, I, I like him it, too. I think yeah, he's a great yeah, actor. Yeah. Quarry, great TV show. But it is almost like... They'd used all their budget and everything else. And they're like, oh, we were planning on getting Hardy, but yeah. uh, we'll just save the money. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Logan yeah, Marshall yeah. Green. Because he just sort of sticks out in that yeah. like, cast. <laughs> all right, for the drop. What do you mean there's not another Tom Hardy? Get me Belgian Tom Hardy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they basically, they got approached by a director for another movie that neither of them ended up doing because they were booked in other projects. But when prepping for that, they met up a couple of times to talk about it yeah. and got to know each other really well and realized they had really great chemistry together and were trying for years to work together and then apparently Rap House read Lahan's story Animal Rescue which is the basis for the drop before the script was sent to Hardy and texted him being like this could be something for us and like this according to IMDB but, it, but apparently Hardy read it and loved it and you know that's why they did the movie yeah. and you know you after that they started in Child 44 which is an okay movie but not as good as the drop though but I, I bring that up because I actually think they do have really good chemistry like they interact in a way that feels true with where, you know, she's kind of bossing him around and busting his balls, but he yeah. likes it. Like, you know, the bit where he's like, she's like, what do you want to name the dog? And he's like, I was thinking Rocco. I like Rocco. Or maybe Mike. And she's like, Mike. And Mike's a bad name for a dog. Yeah, he's like, you don't like Mike? And he's like, Mike is not a great name for a dog. <laughs> and I like when Hardy's telling a story and he makes like a grammatical error and like she picks him up on it and is laughing and he's like, why are you jumping on me like that? <laughs> like, it's all very nice and flirty. And um, also in that dinner scene where the waiter tells him they can't have Rocco the dog in the establishment and when the waiter leaves, Nadia sticks her tongue out like... Mm, and. Yeah. 
Hardy kind of quietly chuckles like it's all very cute and I think the, those scenes provide a nice bit of colour and levity and hope and also makes Nadia feel a little less like a victim which she sort of ends up because, or she kind of becomes like just a damsel in distress at the yeah, end I suppose yeah that's true yeah. but like she exer- exerts agency in those scenes yeah. and I think if it wasn't for their natural chemistry I don't think you'd buy the ending that Nadia gives Bob a chance yeah. after the movie's big yeah. reveal which we yeah. won't spoil but as it stands you do and also interesting it's set on 9V that Harvey lobbied Dennis Lehane and the producers for a more ambiguous ending that Lehane then partly rewrote on set. And I'd be curious if it was the scene with Nadia at the end, which as it sounds, I think is a very lovely ending. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, because going into it, I was expecting, oh, this is all going to go tits up uh, <laughs> at the end. And uh, the only other Dennis Lehane movies I'd seen I th- uh, were Shutter Island or not adaptations at least, were Shutter Island and Gone Baby Gone. And especially after Gone Baby Gone, which is like real fucking like punch in the heart like just the cl- the climax of the movie yeah. not necessarily the last scene but um i was expecting things to go really badly and i was surprisingly you know was, yeah because you know, the happy Island, the at sh- the end yeah the sugar Island and the gone baby gone ending they're really bittersweet with an emphasis on the bitter yeah you yeah know? yeah uh, we don't want to spoil both those movies they're both no, gonna have yeah. sort of twist endings and they both fucking slap yeah they're both amazing whereas this one sort of leans more into the sweet like it's still like a little bitter but yeah yeah you're never entirely sure you know yeah, yeah. there's a whole thing because at the end of the movie um i was wondering if you had this the first time i watched it i was like that's a very happy ending and i still yeah. think it is a happy ending but someone pointed out that like you hear footsteps but you don't see nadia and someone was wondering is the is the footsteps coming from maybe behind tom hardy or something it could be yeah that's the yeah. thing yeah yeah but I, I i i take it as being like it's just her yeah back. it's yeah. like the perfect kind of you know thriller leaves you with more questions than answers yeah you know the best kind of film is when you're puzzling out after you've seen it yeah, yeah but it's on Disney Plus right now as is um, Disney Prometheus. Plus that's so weird that's the it's, the 20, so it's weird. the Fox thing yeah I know I know <laughs> but it's still it's still weird <laughs> yeah no, Prometheus on the drop <laughs> uh, streaming on Star on Disney do you have another movie you want to talk about I have Close so in Close Numi Rapaz plays Sam, a veteran bodyguard with deep-seated mother-daughter issues who is hired to guard heiress Zoe Tanner, played by Canadian actress Sophie Nellis. After an attempted kidnapping, Sam must protect Zoe and teach her to fight back against their attackers. Come on! Come on! Just get one thing straight. I no longer work for you. From now on, you do as I say. The job's over. Why are you still here? She has no one. You have to fight back. So Rapace takes a lot of roles where she gets to look cool smoking a cigarette, which is something every actor every actor should pursue at least once. And it's a rare action thriller uh, directed by a woman, um, Vicky Jusen, which is ironic considering some of the best and most layered action thrillers of the last 30 years have been directed by women, like Point Break, um, Strange Days. Destroyer. Destroyer, Zero Dark Thirty. Oh, three of Catherine those Bigelow made by movies. Catherine Bigelow, I know, but they're still great. <laughs> and true, you true. Know, that's, that's why Revenge. They're, Revenge, exactly, yeah, another one, yeah, yeah, and it's rare as well that uh, that uh, an action thriller directed by a woman puts a woman front and c- puts women, three of them, front and center, and it's only uh, it only has one male good guy who gets shot in the head without ever getting to throw a punch. It's played by I think his name is Owen Mackin. He's a Irish director Irish, who made just Irish. made directed a movie with Annie Taylor Joy where Numi Rapace has a cameo in. Oh, yeah. look at that! I think he manages the bodyguard agency and is like introducing. Um, Sam to Zoe and Sam or Zoe stalks off because she doesn't want a bodyguard or whatever Sam looks um, to her former lover and uh, also boss and he's like look at it this way 
they actually want to hire a woman. It's progress. <laughs> and uh, I think the film, despite its decent pacing and editing, as well as solid, if not exactly rev- revelatory performances, ultimately kind of feels one note. Like the the novelty of seeing a woman doing the punching and then getting punched in return quickly wears off when there's so little beneath the surface. Like, in fairness to Atomic Blonde, even if there wasn't much operating below uh, what was going on, at least it had all that style. Yes, you know. And that said, you can tell Rapace went all out for this one, doing a lot of her own fighting, shooting and driving. And the stonework really looks like it hurts. She has a fight in a hotel room where she, like, um, basically slams a man through a table and then, like, jumps up in the air and brings both her knees down to break his neck. And it's, like, it's it's one of the most visceral things I've seen in an action movie this year, even if it didn't necessarily come out this year. But it's still pretty damn cool. Yeah. yeah I, would, I, would, I would recommend it, yeah. It's on yeah. Netflix, right? It is, yeah. yeah. It's a Netflix movie. Yeah, I also want to talk about two Netflix movies with Numeri Pass. She made these two movies with Tommy Vercola. He's this Norwegian director who's probably best known for the Nazi zombie franchise Dead Snow. Oh. And also Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, which is a very underrated movie. The best of that subgenre. The Jeremy Renner one? Yeah. Ahead of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies and Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. <laughs> I've only seen Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Vampire Hunter. Vampire Hunter. <laughs> Vampire Wonder. Ooh, Vampire Wonder. What a good movie. <laughs> no. But Vercola, he also made these two great movies with Rapace, which I, I think gave her a chance to show off more of her skills or at least kind of show her proficiency in certain areas of acting that was only kind of hinted at in other roles she had taken on. Um, the first one was this 2017 dystopian sci-fi action thriller called What Happened to Monday? So this is set in the future. Overpopulation has caused a worldwide crisis resulting in a strict one-child policy enforced by the Child Allocation Bureau led by a politician played by Glenn Close. Oh, the greatest chin in cinema. <laughs> exactly. Chinema, if you will. <laughs> Chinema Paradiso. Um, <laughs> so in the case that uh, a family has more than one child, all but the eldest children are put into cryosleep until the overpopulation problem is solved. At least that's what they say. In this future, a woman named Karen Setman dies giving birth to identical septuplets. Uh, their grandfather and Karen's father, played by I Know That Face legend Willem Dafoe, Ooh. in real Willem Dafoe territory, um, <laughs> raises them and names them after the days of the week and trains them to pose as a single individual named after their mother and they only leave the house on the day of their name. So they're basically like seven people pretending to be one person. Right, yeah. And they have all these strict protocols to avoid detection. And But as they become adults, all with different personalities and all played by numerous Pass, some yearn to break free of the hive, while others stress how important it is to stay together. However, one day, Monday does not come home and the remaining six must investigate her disappearance, uh, a mystery that may be tied to Glenn Close's politician figure. Why can't you just accept that this is your family? This isn't a family. It's a repressive regime. I didn't pick this life any more than you did. Yet you live it so perfectly. Karen Setman from cradle to grave. It's disgusting. What do you care? Your only ambition was to be a total loser, which you are. Fuck you, Monday. Just because I have my own personality and dreams and want to have a relationship that is more than just a random fuck with someone that I will never see again. I'm sick to death of Miss Karen fucking Setman. Karen Setman is the foundation we build our lives on. No, she's a mask. A mask we put on one day a week. One day a week we can go out in the real world and we can't even be ourselves. We have to be a fake person. Oh, shut up, both of you! You're driving us all crazy. Yeah, this is our life. It is what it is. Being trapped in this prison six days a week isn't a life. It's a slow, agonizing, soul-sucking death. 
Uh, this movie's a blast. It was released as an FX original in Ireland, but it came out in 2017 when the streamer wasn't the juggernaut it is now. Yeah. Sort of in that spectral zone. <laughs> uh, if you haven't seen it, I'd, I'd seek it out. What's really great about it, though, is that I can imagine, and it might have been a hindrance to it being a mainstream success, but you hear that premise and it sounds so good. And I can imagine it being pitched a tone that's sort of 12A, lots of hijinks, leaning into the fun of watching an actor, you know, play multiple different characters. Yeah. Uh, like this could be made with like Ryan Reynolds tomorrow. And apparently it was mm. originally written for a man, but Verkola changed it because he wanted to work with new me. Eddie so Murphy badly. wasn't available. <laughs> like me, Dave, it's <laughs> something like that. And while the movie is that, like it is fun. But, like, characters have graphic sex, and it's full-on violent and has moments of real horror. And, like, spoilers, not all the sisters make it, you know? (laughs) Characters die in quite emotionally and physically brutal ways. And the blend of being quite sincere and having characters you love and having real heart, but also at the same time having more lurid elements, that blend is kind of thrilling and makes the film, which is cribbing on all these sci-fi concepts, like it's a bit of Orphan Black, Mm. it's a bit of Blade Runner, it's a bit of Children of Men, it's a bit of, like, Soin and Green. That all feels somehow quite original and... I think that duality is best personified by the scene where um, in childhood, one of the kids um, skips out of the home one day against Willem Dafoe's orders mm. and loses the tip of her finger in an accident. And Willem Dafoe has to cut the f- uh, off the six other girls' fingers oh, Jesus. in the exact same place <laughs> to keep up the illusion that they're one person and keep them safe. And later we see in a flashback him, he goes into his bedroom and just quietly sobs. And when one of the kids sees him, he looks up and says, I'm just trying to protect you. And you see how this thing that could be seen as monstrous was done out of pure love. Yeah. And um, it's, which is great. And in terms of her past, obviously it's a great showcase for her. And like a lot of actors have played twins, but like seven people, you know, that's rare. And just the fact that in those scenes where all the seven twins are around a table talking and I don't know how they did it. I imagine it's a mix of stand-ins, digital trickery and maybe shooting a scene where Numi says something as one character and then shooting it the exact same scene but she's playing a different character and putting them together but either way just the fact that their interactions feel human and natural is some feat but then also there's the fun of each member of the seven having a unique personality while existing within the hive and Rob Haskang to emphasize those key differences in in her performances like one of the twins is a more serious sort of corporate businesswoman there's one that's an activist who's real fiery there's another that's a stoner that's a little more like chill and laid back one that's more sociable and kind of like a party girl and is real bubbly. There's one that's like an introverted shy hacker who's afraid of the outside world and is really meek. Sort of a counter to Elizabeth Salander. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I mentioned Orphan Black, which I really liked. There was a show that had a similar premise and that was one actress playing a bunch of different clones. But while well, the actor in that series, Tatiana Maslany, who I love, seemed to be She-Hulk, like she was great. But the writers had like a couple of seasons to build all those clone yeah. characters up. Whereas yeah. in a two-hour movie... And like I will say, some of the twins are more developed than others, but generally, like it's it's very impressive. Rapace could convey all those different personalities to the audience cleanly with you know a movie's runtime. Yeah, and even in one case, sort of like she sets up a character as being one type of person and then reveals that that was a bit of an act. Like one of the twins, like the more sort of bubbly, sociable person, which is not really a character Rapace often plays. She's bragged to the others that she's dated a lot of men on her days out. But in their investigation into Monday's disappearance, they discover Monday was seeing this man romantically, played by Marwan Kenzari, um, who's a great actor, uh, probably best known for The Old Guard, basically. But they send the sociable twin to pretend to be Monday and gather information on him. But the guy is very flirty and wants to make love to who he thinks is his girlfriend. Mm. And the sociable woman tells her sister, I can't remember what day of the week she is, but she's like, he wants to have sex. And they're like, you'll be grand, all your big talk. And she's like, mm. and you realize <laughs> she's a virgin. 
But Kinzari is actually really sweet and tender. And after she does her espionage stuff, like she gets the data she needs, the two end up having this really steamy, passionate sex scene. And the focus is all on her pleasure and you know, this brief moment of joy in her kind of miserable existence otherwise. Uh, and the it, Norwegians. <laughs> and it's really well played by Rapace. And another example of the movie sort of defying the norm. Like, I don't think many conventional Hollywood blockbusters would take a break for, from the action for a graphic but tender depiction of the main character's sexual awakening. I don't think so either. Yeah, right? no, you're right. Yeah. And then... um she also, Vercola, who made What Happened to Monday, he also made another movie with Numi Rapace that's now on Netflix, just came out a couple of weeks ago, called The Trip. Um, it's set in Norway and stars Numi Rapace and Askel Henny, who has been in a couple of Hollywood movies. I know him best from that movie, Headhunters, based on the Joan Esbo book. I haven't seen that. Nikolaj Custer, Waldo's the villain in that. It's a good movie. But the two play an actress and a director, respectively, who are married, and it kicks off with the pair of them heading to a remote cabin where we come to learn that both spouses have plans to kill the other. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And um I read the description. <laughs> yeah. And but before they can carry out their plans, unexpected visitors arrive and they face a greater danger. And like this movie's a hoot. Um there needs to be a name for this type of subgenre of movies where it's a, as suspenseful as a, a full-on thriller, mm. but there's also a ton of black comedy and also moments of Lucio Fulci-esque extreme gore. And the closest thing it reminded me of was Come to Daddy, which we talked about in the Michael Smiley episode, although the trip is a lot more extreme. But what I liked about it and Come to Daddy is that amongst all the people trying to kill each other and the dark comedy and the ultra violence is this sort of emotional underpinning that makes you care about what's going on in that Henny and Rapace's characters obviously cared about each other at some point, but their love is just soured and he's a gambling addict who's put them both in death. She's had an affair and the careers aren't where they want them to be. He apparently got me too'd for asking an actress to remove her top for an audition and he's like, the role she was auditioning for was a stripper. And as he's explaining <laughs> it, Noomi keeps shouting, creepy and incompetent at him. But he wants to make movies and is stuck directing soap operas. And Meanwhile, Noomi moved from Sweden to Norway to pursue an acting career, but the biggest part she ever landed was in a Viagra commercial. So they're very unhappy, but by being forced to defend themselves against these, you know, three escaped convicts that happen to be hiding out in this cabin when Henny and Hapas arrived and take them hostage, who are very funny to watch, but are really nasty mm. people, that kind of rekindles their spark, actually being confronted with this greater threat that makes them realize how petty their problems were. And it, it, it's kind of sweet amongst all this black comedy, which I, I must say pushes up to the line of good taste and maybe surpasses it at points. But yeah, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't cackling with yeah. shocked laughter throughout. And Numi is so funny in it. Just just two things I'll mention. Like at the beginning of the movie, when they haven't revealed their murderous intentions yet, we see them cooking in the kitchen and can they can just barely hide their contempt for each other. And Henny's character is preparing a steak, but is doing this thing where he's trying to not pick it up, or he's trying to he's picking up delicately with the knife because he doesn't like touching the raw meat. And yeah. she's like, oh, for Christ's sake, and just like grabs the steak and like throws it on the pan. But later, after she knocks him out and has him tied up after he tried to kill her, and she's found all his weapons, and she sees there was a saw, and she's like, I just have one question was the saw for and he's like to dismember your body so it wouldn't float back up when I sank it in the lake and she just starts howling laughing and being like you were going to dismember me you can even touch a raw meat <laughs> and it's even funny because later it's revealed that he had actually hired someone to dismember her <laughs> after he <laughs> killed her because of his phobia also another good running gag is the, the criminals have them tied up and one of them is like to Numi you you you're you're in the ad for the dick pills and she shakes her head kind of timidly to be like yeah and She's like, wow, movie star. And she just briefly suddenly smiles for a second before kind of coming back down to earth and being like, yeah, the guy who's complimenting me has me tied up, you know? <laughs> yeah, the whole movie, the husband is like, you're a shitty actress. Like, it's the whole thing he'll go to to wind her up. 
But um, she actually ends up using her acting skills to trick one of the criminals at one point so that the husband can kill him. And after they're, they're hiding, there's one point where they're hiding in a closet towards the end and the husband basically says, like, you run, I'll distract the criminals, sort of sacrificing himself. And right before he goes to do it, and he says, like, by the way, downstairs, best fucking acting I've ever seen. And she just erupts into this biggest grin and it's so funny. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and you mentioned you know she's in Close, which is an action movie. But like in whatever happened to, or in what happened to Monday and the trip, there's a, a lot of very stylized, choreographed action that looks very physical. And Numir Pass's character gets punched and thrown around the room, but also like gives back as much as she gets. And you know, well, obviously, you know, there's stunt people involved. A good bit of it seems to be like in camera, like hand to hand, like jumping yeah. on people's back, you know, spinning around, being thrown around across the room. And, I can hear her screams as I'm thinking about it. Yeah, and, she, <laughs> and she's quite like formidable despite her you know small height and frame and. You know, I I would love to see her in a sort of John Wick or Atomic Blonde absolutely. type franchise. Yeah, I think yeah. that'd be really fun. She's and born be great. for it. But um, yeah, no, uh, two movies I absolutely recommend. Yeah, upcoming roles and Numerous Fast Low Key has like a really good upcoming filmography. Like all those movies you mentioned at the beginning, like Lamb, Eight Twenty Four, mm. Icelandic Horror, about a couple who raise a lamb baby. That's my shit. Yeah. Uh, you Won't Be Alone. Supernatural Horror set in an eighteen hundreds isolated Macedonian mountain village. Ooh. Black Crab. Tasked to deliver a package that could end world war, six soldiers must skate across a frozen sea unaware of what they're carrying. Could be good. If I knew yeah. what kind of the war, well, was it trying to stop a war? Yeah, yeah. Could it cause a war? Start I don't know. One. Also a series. She's going to be a series based on Django, the old Italian western. Yeah. With Matthias Schoenartz as Django. Hey. It hey, all ooh. comes back around. Hey, yeah. It could be good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, do you want any broader thoughts on Numi? I just really like her. Yeah, I think she's, she's great. great. Yeah, great, great uh, character actress to end the year on. Yeah. Rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Email I know the facepod at gmail.com if you'd like to reach out to the show. Follow us at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Shani Fernandez for editing and for helping out running our socials. Uh, if you love the show, please consider donating five euro a month to us through Headstuff Plus, where you can find uh, special exclusive bonus episodes. We have multiple available now, including a couple in our Leading Legend series that focuses on A-listers like Brad Pitt and Denzel Washington and Jodie Foster. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. You can find me at the Headstuff Film section where people can check out my recent review of the great Celine Shiama movie, Patima Mom. We'll be very surprised if it isn't in my top 10 of the year. And soon enough, it's coming to that time forward of the year. Ne- ne- two weeks from now. Yes. And um, you can also check me out at joe.e where I write about news and the odd entertainment story. See you later, Cinephiles. Bye-bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.